It's good to see everybody. Hope you're all ready and eager to hear this uh, somewhat of a weighty topic this morning. Um, but again, it's for the sake of unity with uh, love and respect for one another with grace and mercy. Um, so let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. And if you need a handout, um, go ahead and raise your hand. Um, but let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now just as humble servants, as sinners bought by the blood of Christ. Um, Lord, I pray for the unity of the church, this church, the continued unity. Um, Lord, the calling out of sin and love and grace and gentleness, um, as we're going to talk about this morning and we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you remove again any distractions so we can focus on your word and what it has to say. Um, just bless this time, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So today's topic is church discipline, um, preserving God-glorifying unity by way of church discipline. Um, a central theme running through this class is the tension between God's grand purpose for the church, which is that we should be the manifestation of his glory on earth, um, and then the battle, the, the, the uh, tension between our sin as well. So there's a struggle there. Much of what we discussed has been now sin-prone Christians, um, has been how sin-prone Christians can glorify God through their love and unity together. But there are times when sin attacks our church and those who fall under it don't repent. Those, fragile, those are fragile times for the church unity. We could choose to ignore sin as a church and threaten the distinctive calling of Christ's church. On the other hand, we might act harshly in self-righteousness, destroying our unity. Uh, fortunately, the Bible has, show, has shed wisdom on the issue where ours is lacking. We re refer to the Bible's approach in church discipline as, it, as this church. It's a biblical response to unrepentant sin um, is plainly what it is. And far from the perceptions of the old witch trials and scarlet letters, um, discipline is an inherently positive thing. It's command in scripture as for our good. It's, that's what it says. It's for our good. It means we care for each other by speaking the truth and love about our sin. It means we protect the church from serious unrepentant sin, which brings, brings disrepute to Christ. And tragically, the world can so often sneer at the church's con conduct. He's a leader in the church, and he's worse than we are. Well, discipline is God's normal tool for preserving the reputation of Christ in his church by making it clear that Christ does not condone sin, okay? So the model for discipline in the church is the discipline that our loving Heavenly Father exercises as he deals with us. The book of Hebrews tells us, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And that's Hebrews 12, 6. The goal of discipline, beloved, the goal of discipline is righteousness. Okay? And a few verses later in Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This morning, we'll consider how the Bible instructs us to 
practice church discipline, and doing this well strengthens unity in the church and protects Christ's reputation. We'll also think about how we, as members, bear a responsibility to be involved in the discipline process. Before we get any further, let's define some, some terms here. Uh, in bullet point number two, there's two types, two, two kinds of discipline. Formative discipline and corrective discipline. When we say church discipline, we, we generally think about the second one. But the, the first is much more common. So first, formative discipline. Leading people to maturity in Christ through positive instruction and teaching. That's what formative discipline is. It's leading people to maturity in Christ through positive instruction and teaching. For example, when the word is preached to us and we're convicted, or when Christians encourage each other, that's formative discipline. And the few verses to outline what that is, is Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so those three are a great outline for what formative discipline is. And it is important because God uses it to prevent the sin that would require corrective discipline. So to define corrective discipline is correcting sin in a believer's life. Everything from privately confronting each other to the formal excommunication of a member. It's where we have to say, I think you're wrong to say that. Or even finally, according to Jesus's teaching, I know that you're claiming to be a Christian, but we've got to treat you like a non-Christian because you won't stop lying or fill in the blank. That's all corrective discipline. We see this biblically laid out. Uh, we'll see this biblically laid out soon when we look at First Corinthians five and Matthew eighteen. Um, but in bullet point three, the purpose of corrective discipline. This morning we're going to concentrate on the second of these kinds of discipline, mostly, and uh, corrective discipline. So why do we do it? Well, mainly because the Bible tells us to. Pretty pretty straightforward. Uh, but it also gives us some specific goals in doing so. First, it's the point of corrective discipline. It's for the good of the person being disciplined. Discipline is loving because it warns us and corrects our sin, and we profit from that. And for that person who's living in unrepentant sin, it clarifies that his or her actions don't support a profession of faith in Christ. Okay? Second, it's for the good of other Christians— as they see the serious nature of sin and its consequences, it serves as a reminder of the consequences of sin and as a warning to those in the church that God takes sin seriously, okay? Thirdly, for the health of the church as a whole, it stops sin that could lead to strife and conflict or confusion for less mature Christians about what it means to follow Jesus. And fourthly, the corporate wit it's for the corporate witness of the church. Church discipline protects our corporate witness to a watching world. 
people notice when there's a whole community of believers whose lives are different from the world. They can just as easily discount our message when our behavior looks just the same as the world around us. So in all four of those add up to the main point, it's the main goal of church discipline is to make known the excellence of our Redeemer. Okay, we are set apart and we need to act that way by the strength and grace and mercy of God. So number four, how do we exercise church discipline biblically? And we'll spend the rest of our time talking about how we can do this for our good and for God's glory. To do that, we'll just walk through the questions you see in your handout here. Uh, what if someone sins against you? What if someone sins against you? So first, what do you do if that happens? How should you react? Do you give them a piece of your mind and then give them the silent treatment? Do you say nothing and build up resentment in your heart? And what we need to do is look to what Christ says, and, and we'll refer to Matthew 18 here, and that's in your handout. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says, If your brother sins against you, go to, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the biblical prescription there. So step one is go to the offender. So we should first go and talk with the one who sinned against us. And, and to this morning we'll call that person the offender, just for our reference. And if they won't listen, we're to take a few others along. If they still refuse to listen, we should tell it to the church, which should expel them if they refuse to repent. Well, considering this in more detail, let's think about the first step. In most cases, that first conversion will resolve things, in most cases. Either he'll repent or you'll realize that you were mistaken. And how can we prepare for a conversation like that? They're not comfortable but how can we biblically prepare to talk to someone if we're confronting sin? And that's our goal. First is pray. Pray for that person. Pray that God would grow them spiritually, that they would desire to know more of God, and this will soften your heart towards them in preparation for your talk as well. Right? If you put the focus on them and God's grace and mercy in their life and their, a repentant heart and to soften their heart, we should be praying for that for ourselves as well. Okay? And when you go to that person, um, hopefully your heart will be right. Second, make sure that you have a good cause to go to the offender. Some sins are objective, right? I witnessed him stealing money from the register. Others may be less objective, which is he is unforgiving, okay? How do you quantify that? We can talk to another believer about either category, but the less objective a sin is, the more we need to be ready to explain our concern with gentleness, love, and clarity. So don't lead with, you're not practicing forgiveness. Repent or I'll tell it to the church. Right? You, don't, you don't come out guns blazing, right? In a much more gentle and humble manner, we should say, brother or sister, I love you and I know that you love the Lord. Out of my love for you and the Lord, please hear me when I say that based on the words that you're choosing to use when speaking to me. Words that are cynical instead of graceful, I really fear you're speaking out of unforgiveness from the incident that occurred between us in the past. 
right? Don't you think that might be true? And you come to them alongside them for the sake of restoration, right? Not to, not to beat down. So thirdly, examine your own heart to make sure your motives are proper. And this is important. Make sure that you are not going to the offender out of anger, out of revenge, out of an attitude of superiority, or some other sinful attitude. Make sure your desire is reconciliation of the relationship for the good of both the offender and yourself for the glory of God. As Jesus says, confess your own sin first, and then you'll be able to see more clearly into your brother's sin, right? Matthew 7, 5. So fourthly, be very careful talking to others about this person's sin. This is a big one. You'll see here in Matthew 18 that Jesus says, go and talk to them. <laughs> not your best friend, not the offender's spouse, not um, people on your Facebook or Instagram feed, but talk to them. It's fine to seek counsel on how to have that conversation if you need to, but be very careful that that conversation doesn't become gossip or slander. And remember that even when you need counsel from another person, you can always get advice from them without mentioning the name of the offender as well. And finally, when you do talk to the offender, remember to act and speak in a spirit of gentleness, humility, and also love. A gentle answer, what? Turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. All of these things will make the, the first step of approaching the offender more effective and preserve and protect the church's unity by avoiding obstacles such as pride or gossip. Now, before we move on to the next step in Matthew 18, let me make two further points in this first step um, from Matthew. First, you may be wondering, do I go to the brother or sister for every little offense? Just nitpicking every little thing. No, the, the answer is no. Um, love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs tells us that to overlook an offense is a glorious thing and de demonstrates patience and forbearance. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is for his glory to overlook an offense. So when should you go? Two questions to ask before you do. One, has the offense led to a broken relationship between the two of you? Does it come to mind frequently? Does it make you feel different toward that person for more than a passing moment? Is it difficult for you to forgive? If the answer is yes to any of these, then you should definitely go talk to that person. So second question is, what's the danger of this sin to the offender? Keep in mind what James writes, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Is the sin we're talking about endangering the person's ability to reflect Christ to the surrounding world? It is a sign of larger struggles, or could it lead there? The second point I want to make in response to the question, when should I go, is that Jesus is the, um, tells us to initiate a conversation whether we're the offender or the offended. Some people don't think of both sides there. Matthew 18 tells the wronged person to seek reconciliation, but Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24 says that if you think someone has something against you, what should you do? You should go to them. That is, you're the offender. 
then it's also your obligation to speak up. Matthew 5 even says that if you're on your way to worship God and you remember that your brother has something against you, stop. Go and be reconciled. That's how much Jesus cares about your relationships within the church. That's why it's critical for us to examine our relationships with others before coming to the Lord's table. When there's conflict, both the offender and the one who's been wronged are to initiate reconciliation. It's almost like we're, we're supposed to trip over one another, ru rushing to forgive and reconcile. Isn't that a sweet picture? Yes, but it's difficult, right? Because we, we, we get in the way. So step two, taking one or two others to that person. So back to Matthew 18 here. If the offending person won't listen to you, and it is clear that sin has been committed, we are to take one or two others with us. This serves two purposes. First, the offender may be more likely to listen to a neutral third party than the person who's been sinned against. Um, the other person also serves to witness what happened at the meeting in case discipline advances to the next step. Now, let me offer a few thoughts on this process if you ever find yourself at this stage. First, before you take this step, consider how objective the sin is. Are you confronting them because you think they're spending maybe uh, too much money in a manner that you don't think it's wise or because you think they're acting with wrong motives, um, we have to remember that only God knows their hearts. If this is a subjective issue like, better, uh, like that, better to drop the matter and pray for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's, if it's subjective, it's better to drop it and pray for the Holy Spirit to work on their heart, um, that the Holy Spirit will do a work in them and convict them. But second, if you do move forward, make sure that the person or people you bring with you are trustworthy, um, that they're discreet, that they're impartial, um, and have good judgment. And third, let the offender know what you're about to do. Don't, don't blindside them. That, that usually doesn't go too well. Um, and fourthly, be careful not to try not to lobby or convince the witness uh, to your side before the meeting. Um, that's a hard one as well. Uh, let, the let, let those facts speak for themselves. Because sometimes what do we find out when we're trying to go to someone? Could be us. Right? And we need to be open to that. So thirdly is tell it to the church. Step three, if the offender still refuses to listen, the church needs to be brought in. And they can excommunicate them if they still refuse to repent. So in Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't specify that the leaders of the church are being consulted prior to taking the matter to the church, but certainly that the intermediate step seems appropriate and consistent with these instructions. Looking at these steps in Matthew 18 then, we can see Jesus trying to involve the fewest number of people possible. But he's willing to make things public if that's what is necessary for the good of the offender and the protection of the church. At the final state, he even uses those outside the church and Satan himself to providentially push toward repentance if they are saved. Okay, so bullet point number four, B, what if you see a member sin against another member? And we need to be careful in this. Matthew 18 provides us with guidance about what to do when someone sins against you. But what if you just observe sin against another church member? What should you do then? 
Well, the answer is it depends. Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to a spirit of gentleness. And Luke 17.3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. On the other hand, the Bible also warns us not to be busybodies, looking for opportunities to point out all the faults in others. That's not a spiritual gift. Some people take it upon themselves to do such things. Uh, we have to remember what 1 Peter 4.15 says. It says, make sure none of you suffers, and here's a list for you, as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or what? A troublesome meddler. Groups all those together. So we need to be careful not to get involved when we do not need to. Meddling in the affairs of others when we do not need to is, is what a busybody is. So all of us are sinners, and so it it'd be impossible and frankly unproductive to call attention to every single little thing that we see and every little uh, sin that we come across. So how do we know when it's appropriate time to approach a brother or sister in sin? So here's a couple of guidelines. First, is the sin bringing dishonor to God in a way that is visible enough that it's lying about God's, uh, that it is lying about God to non-Christians? Uh, secondly, is it hurting others by causing them to be tempted or by setting a bad example for younger Christians? Third, could it lead to discord and disunity in the church? Fourth, is it serious, seriously harming the offender by damaging his relationship with God or in other ways? If one of or more of those answers is yes, then we definitely should go talk to the other person, the offender. The less, and, so, and, and this is important, the less relationship you have with a person, the higher the bar is for talking with them. If you know them well, and you have trust in one another in your relationship, um, the bar is much lower, right? It's easier for you to go talk to that person if you know and love them and they know and love you. Um, but as sinners, who are we one in? Christ, right? So we have the same spirit of Christ and so conviction of sin, we all have the same spirit. Um, whether you know that person well or not, if you go to them in appropriate ways and appropriate steps with love and gentleness and respect, they should receive that, whether you know them well or not, okay? But that does say if you do know them well, it's easier to talk to them. <laughs> so 4C, what if someone sins in a way that is heinous? So over the years, much has been made of the difference between the discipline case of 1 Corinthians 5. This is where Paul tells the church to expel a man sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. In Matthew 18, that we just looked at. So how, how does that work? In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul doesn't ask about the man's repentance. He simply instructs what? The church to put him out of fellowship. So what's going on here? And is there some kind of fast track of church discipline that Jesus didn't describe? Well, sort of is the answer. What, what seems to be going on in 1 Corinthians is sin that is so heinous and so beyond what is acceptable in that society that there's really nothing a man could say to convince the church of his repentance. Generally, we follow the principle in churches is innocent until proven guilty. You stay inside the church until through the steps of Matthew, Matthew 18, it becomes evident, evident that you're not repentant. But sometimes the credibility of any claim to repentance is so shot that the church should move very quickly to, to move that person outside of fellowship. 
So both for your good and the reputation of Christ that you cut that person off, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5. Then if by God's grace your claim to repentance becomes credible again, then that ban of excommunication is removed and you're welcomed back into the church. So we see the same expedited process for those who are causing division in the church. So we read in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. That's a heavy scripture. Okay, so Christ teaches church, church discipline in a matter of uh, being divisive very, very quickly. He treats that problem. So how do I relate to someone who has been excommunicated? Many times this will not be an issue because the individual has moved out of the area or no longer associates um, with people of the church. But if they remain in touch, we must heed what is written in 1 Corinthians 5.11. We read that we should not associate with any such person who is living in unrepentant sin that has led to excommunication. In Matthew 18, 17, Jesus says to treat the person as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So what does this look like in practice? Well, it means we should treat the individual as they are an unbeliever. Not just any unbeliever, but an unbeliever who tragically thinks that they are okay. We should act lovingly and kindly towards them when we do see them. But when we see him or her, we should take care to exhort them to repent. We give them the gospel regularly, just as we need it daily. It's, it, we're not sitting down and having meals with them and acting like everything's okay. Okay? We should never simply interact casually as nothing's wrong, like we might consider another Christian or even a non-Christian who knows he's out, uh, outside of Christ. And they know they're a non-Christian. That's the scene of 1 Corinthians 5.11, not even to eat with such a one. Of course, when the excommunicated person is a family member or a co-worker, other scriptural obligations we have to the relationship might often take precedence, and you must act in wisdom, right? It it's obviously gets a little meddled when they're an immediate family member. So the next to topic is what if a church leader sins? So finally, the last topic here is what scripture says about sin among the leaders of a church. The guiding passage for this here is 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Paul's giving special caution to protect elders from fraudulent attacks. Okay, first and foremost, before a discipline action, against an elder can be brought, there must be two or three witnesses. The wisdom of this is clear from scripture is that church leaders must often engage in situations that may lead to unfounded accusations against them, right? Fraudulent charges. With this passage in mind, let me address two situations that might arise in a church. So first is, what if you hear rumors of an accusation against an elder, number one, and second, if you encounter an elder in sin? So rumors of an accusation. What if someone tells you they witnessed an elder in sin or think they may have? What's your responsibility? First and foremost, if we look back to what we already discussed, you should ensure your party not to gossip and slander. Tell them to talk to the elder about it directly. That's the first step, right? 
So not to you, not, not, hey, tell me more. What happened? Oh. And then you just keep, keep letting it go. Just like you would in any other situation, actively discourage them from slandering that elder in conversation like that. If they say that they have already spoken to the elder on the matter, ask them to bring you with them and address it again, okay? So there are two exceptions to this rule. If you have witnessed that particular sin and this person is coming to you as per the requirement of uh, the witness of 1 Timothy 5.19, as we just read, or if they're asking you to serve as that witness, even though you've not been a night witness. So more on that in just a, just a second. So the second one is, if you witness an elder in sin, if you see it. So what if, it, what if it's elder sins against you or are witnessing an elder sinning? What do you do then? Quite simply, talk to them about it first. We should always go back to scripture and the prescription that we have. Talk to them. Keep in mind that the situation may not be as it appears, so act humbly, remembering that they're serving as an elder, because at least in the past, our church has found them to be above reproach, right? So it's wise to give them the benefit of the doubt. So what if you're uncomfortable going up to them and talking to them, right? Approaching them. So per, per, perhaps, though I, I pray this never happens, they've sinned by intentionally uh, intimidating you. Um, it's okay to approach an, another elder or deacon um, with your concern, where your intent is to keep the matter quiet and discreet and involve a minimal number of people um, so you're not in violation of 1 Timothy 5.19, okay? Okay, so let's say that you've discussed the matter with the elder, perhaps open the scriptures to show them their sin, but they don't repent. Now what? So recall what I said earlier about objective versus subjective sin. If something is subjective and you can't be sure of it, then pray and pray and pray. Perhaps stop pursuing the matter and pray. If the matter is something that's objectively verifiable, like embezzlement, sexual misconduct, um, for example, then you must continue to follow 1 Timothy 5.19. I say must because discipline even the discipline of another is not optional for a church. We must follow scripture. So this is your responsibility before God as members of this church. This is your responsibility. What's the next step? Speak with others you know who witnessed the sin and ask them to confront the elder with you. And if necessary, bring the matter to the other elders. They will be acting as witnesses as we call for in 1 Timothy 5.19. So what if no one else is a witness? What then? Take, for example, a hypothetical situation where an elder makes an inappropriate advance uh, towards a woman in the church, and the woman is the only witness. So what do you do? In those circumstances, the woman should absolutely positively talk to another mature elder or deacon about the situation. And this would not contradict 1 Timothy 5.19 because her accusation would not be sufficient by itself to trigger the formal discipline process laid out in that passage. In this regard, the specific language here is instructive. It says, do not admit a charge um, against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In this case, the woman is not formally accusing the elder before the church yet or asking that others accept an accusation as true yet. She is merely asking that someone help her establish whether or not her claim is true. And when it is, then you follow church discipline immediately. The woman's disclosure to another elder or deacon would lead to further inquiry by that person and most likely by all the other elders, right? It's handled seriously. But that in itself wouldn't trigger formal church discipline as, as an accusation by itself. It needs to be investigated. 
in order for formal church discipline to begin, the person who's been wrong should bring forward one or more individuals who are willing to act as co-accusers with them. People who can fulfill the role of the witness in 1 Timothy 5.19, even if they have not been eyewitnesses. Because of their careful investigation, their knowledge of the accused, their knowledge of the accuser, and etc., the allegations must be investigated for their accuracy. They must. And you can imagine in that in a case like this, it's usually best to approach the other elder first because they're most likely to have information, perhaps maybe about past accusations made against the same elder. So they're so they're in the best position to fulfill that position of witnesses and co-accuser. So keep in mind what Paul has to say to church leaders immediately following this verse. It says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And those are pretty heavy words. Your elders have a unique accountability before God not to overlook sin in their midst. Okay? And the body doesn't overlook sin of the elders either, okay? So that is, again, our responsibility before God. So the second thing Paul has to say in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20 is that a sin by a church leader is extremely serious. Paul's command to rebuke a sinning elder publicly means that some statement of, of the nature of the offense must be made to the church, even, even if they repent, and if you think about that, that's serious. That's, that's a step above of what we talked about in Matthew 18. So even if they repent, there still needs to be made a public statement. To summarize what's going on here, elders are more vulnerable to accusation. So Paul tells us to be more careful in determining their guilt as well. But sin by an elder can cause greater harm to the church, and it does. So even in the case of repentance, they're, they're going to be dealt with publicly in a much more public way, okay? So to wrap it up, why does church discipline matter? Because the church matters. Christ died for it. And the church only matters when it's different from the world as well, when we're set apart. So think of Jesus's words in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So church discipline is the tool Jesus gave us all the way back in Matthew 18 when he inaugurated the church to keep us different from the world. When we look and we feel different, we herald the gospel in a profoundly compelling way as a church. We spur each other on toward love and good deeds. We protect the message of the gospel for the next generation. But when we become just like the world, all of that fades into nothing. We must be set apart. We must be distinct. And that's the purpose of church discipline, is to keep the unity and the love of the church whole and our witness to continue to glorify God. Amen. So let's strive together as a church to, number one, preserve, persevere in this faith using this tool of discipline when we must for the glory of God and for the salvation of each other, okay? So let's uh, pray and we'll wrap it up. Lord, we thank you for these scriptures that we've learned about and we've talked about this morning. 
on church discipline. I pray that we've learned something new, that we've grown in wisdom and knowledge because of it, that we know now how to better approach situations of sin in our church for the sake of unity. I pray that as we do, we do it with love. We do it with grace. We do it with patience. We do it depending on your word and your word alone. Lord, that it's for the sake of repentance. It's for the sake of glorifying you and all that we do so we can be set apart and holy and a witness to the world and to one another. Lord, I pray that this continues in our church, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.